I next met with Dr. Keith Flaherty from Massachusetts General Hospital, and to begin, he talked about a paper he recently published on the impact of novel therapies on the survival of patients with advanced metastatic melanoma. This paper and one that preceded it, you know, a couple years before, are basically tracking all of the definitive trials, targeted therapy trials and immune checkpoint trials, year by year as we get more published data, you know, from each of those studies, trying to understand kind of short, intermediate, and then now, you know, what in melanoma we're referring to as long-term benefit. So, you know, it's kind of the three to five-year time frame, let's say. So, you know, as I think you know, Neil, the kind of preconception dating back from even the cytokine era, but certainly ipilimumab, the first immune checkpoint, was that basically there might not be very many patients who benefit, but those who do, do it in a very durable way. So as the PD-1 antibodies came forward with a significantly higher response rate, so upfront benefit, you know, 40% response rate in the frontline setting versus 10% with ipilimumab, the hope was that intermediate and then particularly long-term benefit would, you know, kind of track and that we'd see, you know, a tail of the curve that was, you know, ever higher. So that's been the importance of following long-term data on the immunotherapy side. On the targeted therapy side, of course, you know, in other cancer types where targeted therapy has been introduced, you know, years longer than a melanoma, we know that there are both patients who, you know, can develop resistance in the, you know, early course of treatment, and then some who can develop it over longer time frames. But, you know, in melanoma, specifically in the setting of BRAF inhibitor therapy, and admittedly a kind of genetically complex tumor compared to like CML, for example, or gastrointestinal stromal tumor, which are genetically less complex, you know, what is our long-term benefit profile look like? This was something that really people didn't have a lot of confidence about a few years ago, what the tail of the curve, if there even was a tail of the curve, what it might look like. So that's been the undertaking of these kind of cross-study, you know, meta-analyses. Understand, you know, what we already knew, which is that the targeted therapies have a very reliable early impact and do they maintain that in anybody? And if so, who are those patients? And then on the immune therapy side, do PD-1 antibodies follow the ipilimumab precedent in terms of maintaining their benefit over longer and longer follow-up time? So that was the objective. You know, the obvious caveat before jumping to conclusions is that cross-trial comparisons are hazardous. <laughs> and I don't need to tell you that, but, but just to warn people, you know, as they digest this type of data, whether it's in this paper or they just, you know, look at the independent data sets, you know, you can try to adjust for patient characteristics like serum LDH and other measures of disease burden and aggressiveness, but, you know, the trial populations will never be the same. And so having said that, you know, what we've seen in the early data now followed out for several years, but still more follow-up to be done, is that sure enough, the targeted therapies show their overall survival benefit it looks like more protection, if you will, against melanoma fatality in the one to two-year time frame. And then you keep tracking over more time and the immunotherapies, the curves cross, if you will, out around you know, two, three years of follow-up, where immunotherapies are now holding on to the benefit they were able to produce in a larger proportion of patients. And so now it's where it's getting really interesting, because with more follow-up out through three, four years, we're starting to see you know, this slight separation. And you know, people are wondering, obviously, you know, are we going to see with five, seven-year follow-up you know, a very clear fraction of patients with immunotherapy who are maintaining, you know, disease control slash survival. But, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. So it's an interesting kind of maturation of the data so far, but not yet a completed story. Just kind of curious in terms of long-term survivors, whether it's immunotherapy or targeted therapy, how often is this in the presence of actual disease that you can see? You know, somebody who has a PR or stable disease but they are alive five years later. And how much of this is CR? Yeah, great question. And that's at the heart, not of this paper, but of the data that's emerged you know, around this paper. Absolutely clear difference in complete responders versus partial responders. So as you keep going out three, four years, and for where we have five-year data, those patients who are still alive and well then, many, many of them had complete responses early in the course of therapy. And you're absolutely right that if you've got credible disease burden remaining, and by credible, I mean not little, you know, kind of shreds where there were tumors, you know, that separate someone from a complete response, but, you know, FDG-AVID, you know, tumor nodules that remain, those patients are absolutely the ones who are at risk for losing control over time. And that's equally true on targeted therapy and immunotherapy. So, you know, you obviously going through all the data, you have tremendous clinical experience. Let me ask you kind of your gestalt right now that you think about when you see a patient who, let's say, is presenting for initial treatment of metastatic disease, typical melanoma patient in terms of cytomets, et cetera. 
if you think in your own mind, BRF positive, you think in your own mind the likelihood that this patient is going to be alive and well at five years for targeted therapy, so BRAF met combination, immunotherapy, I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of single agent PD1 versus combination. And what global numbers in your mind do you carry for these three strategies in terms of risk of being alive and well in five years? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, the take-home number is emerging at about 30 to 40% likelihood of five-year survival. That's based on small amounts of data, and we have behind that, even out to four years now, phase three cohorts. So if you look at, you know, kind of phase two cohorts, we've got maturity of data that would suggest that we may even be hitting close to that 40% number. But of course, you know, smaller trials will always have more patient selection, maybe enriching for better patients, if you will. So we need to see those phase three cohorts come out. But it's not going to be less than 30%. Well, but when you say that number, is that for one of these modalities individually or using them all together? No, no, no. Okay, fair point. I'm starting with just, you know, single modality. Okay. And in our practice, you know, for most patients, and as you were proposing it for BRAF mutations, it's BRAF-MEC versus PD-1 monotherapy as the most commonly pursued choices. We'll come back to PD-1 CTLA-4 combination therapy. But anyway, no, you're right. The data we've got really doesn't have patients, you know, those clinical trial participants having access to all the therapies. And so, you know, I often tell patients based just on our center data that we think we're in that 40 plus percent range if we leverage the entire toolbox. But now when you say 30 to 40 percent, are you saying both for immunotherapy and targeted therapy, that kind of a number? That's right. Really? That's amazing, actually, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, this is, again, remember, we're talking about overall survival. And you look with either the immune checkpoints or the targeted therapies, and you'll see progression-free survival duck down to, let's say, 25 percent out to four years follow-up. But there's still patients alive and well probably because they've crossed over and gotten access to, you know, effective salvage therapy. So, but you're saying 30 to 40% long-term survival just with targeted therapy? That's right. You have to remember, and this is in that paper to a degree as well, that it all depends on the patient's baseline characteristics. True for targeted therapy, true for immunotherapy. So when those trials were conducted, you know, these were attractive options and patients with all measure of disease burden, low disease burden, intermediate, high, we're going on those studies. So it's the patients with low disease burden, not surprisingly, who are the ones who are much more likely to have complete responses and much more likely to be alive and well, you know, three, four years and counting. If you only offer these therapies to patients with high disease burden, then all of those numbers start to decay in terms of likelihood of long-term survivorship. So the data is very clear on that point. And those trials, you know, the targeted and immune trials accrued a healthy fraction of patients who had low disease burden at baseline. So if you include those patients in the mix, you know, that's what drives the three, four, or five-year benefit rate. I've got to say that I had had this impression, I don't know whether others have, that the likelihood of long-term disease control was a lot greater with immunotherapy than target up therapy. Do you think that a lot of people think that way? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all in advance of the data. In other words, you'd absolutely see talks given with hypothetical Kaplan-Meier curves drawn that made exactly that point. You still see those representations in advance of us having the evidence. And then year by year, as the evidence has been produced, it continues to confound that. You see this tail of the curve emerging on both, where you see some decay on the PD-1 antibody side that people were hoping and thinking wouldn't happen. And you see this persistence on the targeted therapy side that people were thinking didn't occur. That leads to the, seems like age-old question, but I guess it really hadn't been around that long, at least it hadn't been this interesting for that long, of targeted therapy versus immunotherapy first line in the BRAF-positive patient. And I'm kind of curious where you stand today on that, both in the patient who you don't need a quick response in, as well as the patient where you really want to see them respond. Right. It's the first category that's the real nail-biter right now. I say nail-biter because you're right, you don't need a response in the moment, but it's just that the data would tell you you've got two good options. And I would tell you that we're still trying to unpack the molecular features of those who derive long-term benefit from immune therapy versus targeted therapy. And there's some hope there, but nothing definitive, that we may be able to subset. In other words, we may be able to define in the BRAF mutant population, those tumors that have low mutation burden, who basically are the ones who are disproportionately in the running for long-term benefit from targeted therapy, and those patients, again, still BRAF mutant, who have high mutation burden, who are the ones who are driving the long-term benefit from immunotherapy. So we've got to continue to develop that data. It's not going to require big randomized trials necessarily, but just big cohort analyses where we kind of go deeper than just BRAF itself to understand 
you know, who are the patients who get long-term benefit from either. What about pdl one levels? Yeah, so you know, in melanoma, we don't test for it. It's not part of the FDA approvals, and there is no standard test. But you know, there's the availability of commercial assays, admittedly. As in every tumor type that you've deliberated on where PD-1 antibodies are approved, yes, there's an association between higher response rate, you know, with PDL1 positive, and the higher the expression level, the higher the response rate. But the issue in the field has been that melanoma, perhaps more than other tumors, has an appreciable response rate even in the PDL1 negatives. And that's what's precluded people from embracing the testing. But I think you're getting at the point that, well, what about a BRAF mutant patient? <laughs> so you know about the BRAF status. Would it change your thinking if you knew that they had a, you know, let's say a 50% likelihood of response versus a 10 to 15% likelihood of response based on PDL1 testing? And that data exists to discriminate exactly as you're suggesting. The problem is, and this is the point I always make to patients, you know, that data, whether it's with pembrolizumab or nivolumab, comes from clinical trials that used a specific antibody and specific methods for calling positive, negative, and establishing a cut point. We don't have those tests available in practice. I mean, not just at the hospital level. I mean, even at a commercial centralized lab. You can't order the antibody and use the cut point and the method that was used in the trial population to apply to clinical practice. You're using a third-party antibody, and you're getting a report back that doesn't even tell you what they're scoring in terms of, you know, percent positive and what their methodology is. I want to get back to this long-term thing, but just to divert out a little bit since we've talked about pdl one levels, the one situation that, I mean, for several years seems like you would want to be able to use it, although I don't really hear people talking about it, is trying to decide about whether you're going to use combination immunotherapy or single agent. Yeah. It kind of looks like the people with high pdl one levels don't really need the second drug, but... Is that actually the way it works in practice? Yeah, so that's the data. And again, this is this problem of not routinely using PDL1 testing in practice confounds, you know, your ability to leverage that data. So if you're a practitioner who, you know, follows the script that I was just, you know, kind of laying out there and saying, okay, well, look, we don't have a credible assay that, you know, relates to the data produced in these trials, then I'm kind of stuck which is, you know, frankly, my view, at least, you know, from the most evidence-based perspective. So just revisit the data real quick, which is, you know, we have about a, you know, 15 to 20%, let's say 18% based on the published data, response rate difference in favor of PD-1-C TLA-4 combination, nivolumab, ipilimumab specifically, and melanoma. So you do get a bump, you know, 40% to 58% in response rate. You have a progression-free survival difference that's about 10 to 12%, depending on, you know, what time point you're looking at. As you track the population over time, there's a PFS difference. What we only learned about in 2017, first at ACR and then at ESMO with definitive overall survival data now published, is that there's a much more modest impact on overall survival. 5% delta absolute at two years, 6% at three years. So that gives you a kind of, you know, numerical picture of what that data looks like. So that's what we're wrestling with in terms of the data. Now, the apologies that are made are that that trial was not designed as an overall survival primary endpoint to make that comparison. But look, in clinical practice, this is what we're trying to decide between is combination versus monotherapy. And so most people look at that overall data and say, if PDL1 testing is not part of my routine practice, then I've got to have a patient in front of me who's willing to put up with the risk of significant toxicity for the combination for that type of delta in terms of overall survival. And if this is a low disease burden patient that we're talking about, which was kind of scenario number one that we're considering, we now know that those patients can be taken through a sequence of PD-1 monotherapy and salvaged with still a 10% response rate with ipilimumab second line. We didn't know that two years ago, that ipilimumab retained its efficacy as a salvage therapy. And I admit the 10% response rate doesn't sound like much, but remember, that's the profile of the drug that got it approved in the first place in 2011. So a low disease burden patient, in my view, with confidence can be counseled about a sequential approach, PD-1, CTLA-4. If they have a BRAF mutation, of course, you'd favor BRAF-MEC combination therapy before you ever went to a 10% response rate drug like ipilimumab. But this is where, you know, clinical practice, you know, wrestles uh, right now with kind of how to think about sequencing targeted immuno. And again, this IPI-NEVO combination data is so heavily weighing on this decision with overall survival looking, if it's real, if it's even statistically you know, real, it's pretty slight difference combination versus monotherapy, but not a slight difference in terms of toxicity. 
Just to be clear, though, in terms of the sequential thing, when you give the IPI second line, are you also adding in a PD-1 inhibitor? Just No, not routinely. That was a clinical trial concept that got kicked around a couple of years ago. The idea that maybe you need to keep the PD-1 around to be able to leverage the mechanism. We have only phase two level evidence that's now been published, though, that indicates that actually you don't do better than that you know, 10, 15% response rate with Ipinevo combo as a salvage therapy. And with IPI itself having 10% response rate now documented in a couple large cohorts, I'd say that basically you're still tempting toxicity with that approach. And without you know, more promising evidence than what I've just summarized, IPI as a monotherapy is the salvage. And another related issue in these long-term survivors is duration of treatment. How do you approach that both in terms of immunotherapy as well as targeted therapy? Right. So let me give you the quick bullets. So with targeted therapy, it's indefinite. In other words, you just keep going, even in complete responders. And I'd say that at least until we know more. But what we are seeing, and even at Congress, as we've seen some data presented regarding complete responding patients who've discontinued, and there definitely are examples of patients who only after discontinuing had reemergence of disease. We don't know what the percentage of that is, I mean, truly, but the fact that it can happen reinforces the idea that these patients probably need to stay on therapy long-term. On the PD-1 side, PD-1 monotherapy, when it was FDA-approved, was an indefinite duration of treatment in melanoma, no defined duration. But the clinical trials that established the benefit of those drugs most commonly used a two-year duration and then stopped, regardless of what was going on in the scans and so on. And so in our practices, you know, that's in the centers that conducted those trials. We've got comfort with that approach, and many people are starting to dial that back and even think about stopping earlier, all depending on the patient's response. If they've had a complete or near-complete response within, let's say, the first six or 12 months of treatment, then think about truncating even short of two years. There's no consensus on this point. This is really a hot topic right now in the melanoma field because it drives a lot of drug cost and patient inconvenience to keep going into this second year. But going beyond that, I would say we never had evidence that going longer periods of time was important. Just gonna take a moment and ask you a more macro question that goes across tumor lines. As you mentioned, we were in your city, Boston, doing a multi-tumor thing. And you know, we had your colleague, Leisha Sequis there talking about lung cancer. And we were also talking about BRAF, positive disease and colorectal cancer. And those things are kind of buzzing around in my mind as I talk to you. And one of the things that's kind of interesting, Alicia's really been talking about this a lot for the last year, the thing that they see in lung cancer, which is that people with targetable mutations don't do well in immunotherapy, and yet that's really not the case, right? The patient with BRAF is just as likely in melanoma to respond to a checkpoint inhibitor as BRAF negative. Is that right? Absolutely right. Yep. So in your own mind, when you think about these three diseases, lung cancer, colorectal cancer... I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are about this, particularly in lung cancer, where, you know, they're really delaying checkpoint therapy, and yet in melanoma, it's just a totally different ballgame. What do you think is going on biologically? Yeah, no, I think the evidence is there, actually, to explain it. So remember, I was commenting before about tumor mutation burden and this kind of, you know, genetic complexity concept. You know, we've got a bunch of retrospective data that tells you that the tumors that are driving high PD-1 response rates are the ones that have the highest mutation burden. Now, ALK translocated non-small cell lung cancer and ROS, translocated non-small cell lung cancer, are probably the extreme examples of really quite genetically simple tumors. EGFR mutant, I would maybe, you know, kind of put adjacent to those, but similarly, these are not high mutation burden tumors. Remember, these are mostly non-smokers that have those genotypes in non-small cell lung cancer. So hold those for a moment. Come over to melanoma. Almost all of melanoma is at a higher mutation burden level at baseline than those subsets of non-small cell lung cancer. It maps over to smokers' non-small cell lung cancer in terms of mutation burden. So we have our UV-associated melanomas and smoking, non-small cell, bladder, you know, these kind of high DNA damage-related cancers. That's where the through line seems to be in terms of where there's a consistent pretty high response rate to PD-1 antibodies. But if you go fishing down into the low mutation burden tumors, that's where it starts to weaken. So I was suggesting before, you know, in response to one of your questions about how do we break this tie between, you know, for BRAF mutant patients, targeted therapy versus immune therapy, we know from the published data that there's a whole spectrum in that population of some younger patients, particularly with quite low mutation burden, and then others, particularly the older folks, who have quite a high mutation burden in association with their BRAF mutation. And so I suspect that in melanoma, we're actually going to start to be able to discriminate, maybe not as starkly as in non-small cell lung cancer, where they've got, you know, EGFR, ALK, ROS, and they kind of triage those patients 
upfront to targeted therapy and then reconsider immunotherapy later. In melanoma, I think we're going to have you know, a group for whom we're going to have even more confidence assigning them to BRAF MEK therapy if they're low mutation burden, and then PD-1-based therapy if they're high. But we got more work to do on this topic. There's prospective trials that are being mounted now, cross-tumor types, in fact, to really try to set a mutation burden cut point on a, you know, couple hundred, few hundred gene NGS test, you know, the type of test that you can get now from a handful of commercial laboratories as well as academic labs. That's interesting. Any explanation? I don't know how well it's documented in the literature, but I've heard a couple investigators. I know Alice Shaw at your place has done a lot of work on ALK. Talk about patients who have very high PD-1 levels with ALK, but yet don't respond to check one inhibitors. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, no. So I think this issue about measuring tumor inflammation is the other side of the coin, right? So I'm talking about mutation burden as like kind of, you know, adjacent to the kind of testing of the genetic alterations themselves. But you're absolutely right that the flip side of this is how much immune engagement is there at baseline in any of these tumors, and how much does that tell us about the people who are going to respond or not? And you're absolutely right that there are definitely patients who have baseline tumor inflammation. So they've got T cells in there, they're secreting interferon, that's driving PDL1 expression on the tumor cells, and yet they are not one drug away, if you will, you know, a single agent PD1, PDL1 antibody away from responding. They've got other layers of immunosuppression different than the folks, particularly those with high mutation burden, who also have baseline tumor inflammation, PDL1 expression on a tumor, who are one drug away. But remember, you know, even in the tumors that we call baseline highly inflamed and high mutation burden, with single-agent PD-1 antibodies, we're still not cracking above 50% response rates, right? So MSI high colon, when you were talking about colorectal cancer and the BRAF mutant subpopulation of colorectal cancer, those are mostly MSI high cases, the BRAF mutant right-sided colon cancer cases. So those are in the running for response to PD-1 antibodies. But even in that population, it's still a 50% response rate. So it's telling you that even in the tumors that are, you know, pre-wired with all of these mutations, you know, what we think of as mutated neoantigens, lots of baseline T-cell recognition in the tumor, that still there must be other mechanisms that are protecting those tumors and basically mediating de novo resistance to PD-1 antibodies. So, of course, this is, you know, the hottest area in all of oncology drug development is trying to come up with strategies to, you know, be able to, you know, elevate that response rate in those baseline T-cell inflamed tumors. And, you know, there's people who've obviously been putting a lot of time and effort into next immune therapies to try to crack that nut. But I think this discussion points to the fact that maybe there's actually targeted immunocombos that are going to be impactful in terms of trying to be able to potentiate a response in these tumors. In the melanoma case, you know, that's the most popular clinical trial category right now are BRAF, MAC plus PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies. There's three phase three trials now ongoing. And you could say, well, look, these are all active drugs. Why not put them together? But I think the story is actually a bit more, you know, biologically and mechanistically based that these approaches might actually really potentiate each other. And we've been doing phase one slash two trials of this sort for the past several years. And the results are obviously preliminary, but certainly look promising. Yeah, I saw that when I was looking through your papers. I was going to ask you about that. Again, it's different disease, different drugs, but I know they ran into major problems when they combined, you know, EGFR TKIs with checkpoint inhibitors. Why did they see that? And I guess you're not seeing it. Yeah, well, pneumonitis was the thing that came up there. And I think that may be, you know, somewhat of a different situation in terms of combination tox. Now, I should remind you, though, that in melanoma, interestingly, with the very same PD-1 antibodies and the same dose, we see very little pneumonitis. I mean, and very rarely do we see clinically significant pneumonitis. And yet in lung cancer patients, clearly more. So is this a disease state thing? Is it a smoking history thing? You know, when you have the exact same drugs producing a different toxicity profile like that, you wonder what accounts for it. But anyway. Well, you also have different host immune systems because exactly. you have old people versus younger people. Precisely. So there's a number of factors to consider, but suffice to say, we don't see that problem when we try to you know, combine targeted immune therapies in melanoma. But, you know, we're using BRAF and MEK inhibitors, and maybe, you know, there the issues are just going to be fundamentally different. So we've had our eye on liver tox as being the main issue because both classes of therapies can cause transaminase elevations. And those were the things that really, you know, kind of showed up in the early trials if there was anything to really catch one's eye in terms of combination toxicity. But it hasn't been a showstopper. And like I said, multiple combination regimens are now moving into phase three. I had the pleasure of interviewing your colleague, Jeff Weber, and there are a few things that he said to me that are still spinning around my brain that I want to run by you. A couple of them are very practical clinically, but one that I've been really starting to hear about and I think is really fascinating, again, just sort of globally, always 
interested in picking your brain is the so-called microbiome. He was telling me about, I know there was some stuff presented at ASCO, and particularly as it relates to checkpoint inhibitors. Can you talk about kind of what your view is of this and where you think it's heading? Yeah. Yeah, microbiome has been considered now as potentially having a lot to do with how cancers form in the first place, potentially responsiveness to various kinds of therapy. I'm interested in all that, but I would tell you that the immunotherapy setting, in my mind, has got to be (laughs) the area in which microbiome would have the most influence. Seems like it. Because, I mean, put it this way, you know, the branch of the immune system that we are modulating with these drugs is right at the borderline, if you will, of the gut, where microbial infiltration is an all-day, everyday reality, right? So we're defending ourselves against pathogens in the gut as just part of our everyday business. And the immunosuppressive mechanisms that exist to protect us from an overly exuberant immune attack there are, again, just part of normal biology. So when we come in with, you know, in this case, you know, the immune checkpoints and that we see colitis as, you know, the most common life-threatening consequence, I think, you know, you shouldn't be shocked to see that given that, again, this same branch of the immune system is so active at the mucosal boundary. So, but your point about microbiome, you know, if you alter the microbiome, so now you're altering, you know, that kind of host defense composition or its state of kind of alarm and attack, I think the likelihood that that has ramifications in terms of what the immune system can then do or not do in terms of mounting an anti-tumor effect, to me, is very logical. Now, having said that, you know, the data that's being generated in these early studies, you know, is basically just trying to decode the entire universe of the microbiome in the gut, which is just inordinate numbers of organisms that exist there. To me, this feels one step away from whole genome sequencing in the sense that you probably have to look at large populations to be able to try to understand, you know, whether there's a subgroup that has a different microbiome makeup that would really powerfully influence likelihood of response or long-term benefit from these therapies. But I think it's really, you know, it is a very logical thing to me that microbiome, how it relates to immune defenses at the gut boundary, and then the systemic effect of these drugs are very logical steps. But we're going to have to nail down beyond phenomenology, real mechanism that would actually support changing it, right? I mean, actually thinking about giving either supplements to alter the microbiome, potentially even antibiotics to mold it, if you will, in a desired way. And we're a long way away from that. We don't even yet know what the microbiome phenotype is that we would be trying to create, but that's what the early work will aim to demonstrate. That's really fascinating. I never thought about this idea of the immune system in the gut dealing with the bacteria. And liver right behind that. I mean, this is, again, you know, the biliary tree deals with bacterial infiltration, you know, all day, every day. You know, it's the second most active site of host defense, if you will, against you know, the, our you know, commensal organisms that we live with. And again, that's the second most important site in terms of autoimmune toxicity when we give a PD-1 antibody is the liver. And again, these mechanisms are part of tamping down these branches of the immune system and perhaps then you know, not surprising that all of these dots potentially connect. So understanding gut microbiome is going to be critical. There's others that are you know, starting to interrogate skin microbiome, try to understand if there's some you know, relevance there, at least in terms of, you know, having relevance to cutaneous toxicity, which of course is even more common than gut and liver, usually not life-threatening, obviously, but still a very common feature of these checkpoint antibodies. Hmm. It's interesting to view toxicity within the idea of this sort of, you know, normal physiology that's going on. Anyhow, getting back to practical decisions. So I take it that if you see a patient with BRAF-positive metastatic disease in the first line, and they say to you, what's the strategy that's going to keep most likely have me alive and well in five years? You're going to say kind of it's a coin flip? Right, it is. And I tell them further, this is the low disease burden patient. And you know, I tell them further, I'm going to watch you like a hawk through the first few months of therapy. And I'm going to do scans you know, at least every two months because how you respond, going back to complete responders doing well and less than complete response not doing well, is very much going to influence my thinking about how long we stick with treatment choice number one. Basically, you know, I don't want to wait around and get burned by the acquisition of resistance over time in a patient who's having a really suboptimal response to either approach. This is, I think, a key point about the long-term follow-up data is that the progressors are coming from you know, those who had a middle-of-the-road partial response, but where there's still definitely disease burden remaining. 
the high disease burden patient you asked about a while ago, and we didn't talk much about them, but you know, the, unfortunately, these are the patients who just don't get long-term benefit with any you know, reliability to either targeted therapy or immunotherapy. So the patients who walk in the door with symptoms, and then you measure a serum LDH and it's elevated or particularly markedly elevated, like more than two times upper limit of normal, if you look at the data from these you know, long-term follow-up analyses, they are just not in the running for you know, a more than two-year survival outcome. So, you know, if they have a BRAF mutation, sure, we think about BRAF inhibitors for their ability to induce, you know, disease control, symptom benefit, and so on. And it's not that immune therapies can never have an early effect in those patients. They can, but long-term benefit is just unfortunately exceedingly unlikely. And that's true even with PD-1C TLA-4 combination, which I'll tell you is if there's a population in whom that approach is favored, it's those high disease burden patients. So if you have a patient in front of you who doesn't have a BRAP mutation and you're purely weighing PD-1 monotherapy versus PD-1C TLA-4 combo, if they have high disease burden, that is oftentimes the driver of telling them, look, you know, there's more toxicity associated with this regimen, but we're not going to have the benefit of being able to get you through two lines of therapy. If we're going to go for it, we're going to go for it up front with both drugs. That's really interesting. Roughly globally in clinical practice, I don't know, maybe there have been surveys done about what fraction of patients' first-line metastatic disease fit into this high tumor burden? So there are survey data. I think they do vary between the referral centers who always see, you know, kind of a selected set versus community practice. In our practice, I would say, you know, no fewer than 30% of patients meet the definition I'm describing of high disease burden at baseline. You can look at some survey data and talk to community docs, and they'll tell you it's probably closer to 50% of patients who walk in the door by the same rough measures they'd classify as high burden. So it's a non-trivial thing. And remember, melanoma, you know, before we had these drugs eight years ago, you know, the average survival time was six to eight months, even in clinical trial populations, right? So this is an overall aggressive disease, and the patients walk in the door with symptoms and elevations of LDH. To me, it's amazing that we actually can get a benefit of even one or two years duration with the available treatments, but these are not the long-term surviving patients. So when I sat down to do the interview with Jeff, I kind of looked at what's been going on recently, and I looked at it, it looked like ESMO was like huge, huge, huge in terms of adjuvant therapy. I see these two trials. One was Jeff's trial of Nevo, and the other was the targeted trial with the dibrafenib trametinib, and I was like, whoa, I guess things are different now. Is that the case? (laughs) It was different the next day. (laughs) I mean, this is absolutely, I mean, we've had all this discussion about the metastatic setting, and now the revolution's happening in the adjuvant setting, and it's, of course, going to have ramifications for everything we just talked about in the metastatic setting. We already knew that ipilimumab improved relapse-free survival and overall survival in a way that we had never seen historically with interferon or any other approach. That was, you know, one and three-year-ago data. But now we see nivolumab clearly beating ipilimumab. I mean, just hands down on efficacy and on safety. So basically just that's it. Now for the BRAF wild-type patient, very easy. You say nivolumab is the new standard. And literally, you know, I would say, you know, homogeneous opinion coming right out of ESMO that the next patient you saw in clinic who had the same stage three or even resected stage four burden of disease so matched the clinical trial criteria, you'd confidently tell them that's their situation. And the BRAF side, you know, the first result we see is BRAF MAC versus placebo. And there was, in parallel, by the way, a Vemuraf and a BRAF inhibitor monotherapy versus placebo trial, which captured less news because it didn't have the same impact and, and in fact, missed its primary endpoint. Whereas BRAF MAC versus placebo, big impact in terms of improvement, relapse-free and overall survival, even in this adjuvant setting. So the complicated math that we're doing in the field now for a BRAF mutant patient who walks in the door with stage three or even resected stage four disease is, okay, we have IPI versus placebo. Now, nivolumab versus IPI, and you can kind of look at the stepwise improvements there, and it gets you to, you know, roughly, and just I'm apologizing for the cross-trial comparisons and all this stuff, it gets you to a roughly 50% protection, 50% in relapse-free survival. I mean, that, again, we're talking about melanoma, where we were anguishing about interferon with its 10%, 15%, you know, relative reduction in risk. So 50% relapse-free survival benefit. Just more than 50% was shown in the dibrafenib trametinib versus placebo study. So, you know, I tell patients, look, we can't be so precise. These data feel roughly of equal impact. So if you have a BRAF mutant patient, my take-home from ESMO and every day since then is you've got basically equal efficacy data for one year of nivolumab 
or one year of dabrafenib trametinib in the adjuvant setting for these patients with resected stage 3, stage 4 disease. Ipilimumab now basically has been displaced. And so it's what's going to be fascinating as we now shift to doing this in clinical practice routinely is those patients who do relapse what do we do for them? <laughs> because they've now seen these drugs in the adjuvant setting. And as you can imagine, we have essentially no data whatsoever regarding you know, what strategy you should prefer. Do you always switch you know, mechanistically in the BRF mutant patient, depending on what your choice was in the adjuvant setting? I mean, that's tempting to say yes, but you know, we really are going to be entering a new territory where we're going to have to you know, rediscover what benefits are maintained for these therapies if a patient does relapse after adjuvant. Yeah, I'm dying to put together a patient decision aid on this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. But it's amazing data. I'll tell you, I mean, it's, if you just stare at the outcome data, relapse-free survival for all the data sets, and we have this overall survival finding from the Dabrafin and Trementinib trial, I mean, it really is better than expected on both sides, the immune checkpoint side and the BRF-MEX side. And who would have thought that would happen? So a third targeted combination, encorafenib and benimetinib, something that you were involved with, the so-called Columbus trial. Any way to sort of differentiate out the three doublets right now? Yeah. I mean, you can imagine I'm cautious on the cross-trial efficacy comparison. I mean, for what it's worth, the encorafenib and benimetinib combo does produce the best progression-free survival result we've seen in the field with a median of just under 15 months, and that's compared to 11, 12 months for the other two approved regimens. It feels like a potential difference, but the response rate wasn't different. It was, in fact, identical across phase three cohorts for each of the BRAF-MEC combos. So, you know, are we really looking at a difference in this case of, you know, duration of disease control and overall benefit? In terms of efficacy, any way to differentiate their mechanisms? Is this kind of like an aromatase inhibitor kind of switch thing or more complicated? Yeah, I think it's a little more complicated. We think it's all about the kind of biochemistry of these drugs. The MEK inhibitors look really similar. So actually, I don't think there's really a case to be made there. On the BRAF side, though, Encorafenib was actually developed in the shadow of emurafenib and dabrafenib. And what I mean by that is there were actually preclinical studies done and now published head-to-head showing differences in potency and overall specificity as well for BRAF and kind of unique target engagement and pathway inhibition dynamics. I mean, I'll be brief about it, but suffice to say that this is a drug that gets cleared from the plasma very quickly, and yet it has a very long on-target time. And that's different than vemurafenib and dabrafenib. The head-to-head data preclinically make it look like it's a better BRAF inhibitor. Interestingly, when we tested it in phase one, I mean, we presented this data now published as well, that BRAF inhibitor, encorafenib, actually looks like it has a worse tolerability profile than the other drugs. I mean, I could you know, clarify that in great detail, but let me just skip right to the fact that when we gave a MEK inhibitor with that BRAF inhibitor, we saw an even bigger drop in toxicity. In other words, improvement in toxicity by adding a MEK inhibitor to that BRAF inhibitor than we had seen in years past with vemurafenib or dabrafenib. So because BRAF-MEK is the relevant unit of therapy, you know, combination therapy established already, you know, definitively a few years ago, you know, it's of historical interest that that's true, that encorafenib, if anything, is a tougher agent. In combination, and this is where I'm coming to my kind of tie-breaking comment, what's very, very clear is encorafenib and imetinib is a better tolerated BRAF-MEC combination than the other BRAF-MEC doublets. It basically drops the two major, you know, quality of life impacting toxicities. So the fevers and the complicated fevers with chills and lightheadedness and things that can happen with dabrafenib and trametinib do not occur with this combination. And then the photosensitivity that vemurafenib produces, which can be a you know, month-by-month ongoing issue and really a life-limiting, sort of quality-of-life-limiting issue for patients, also just disappears with this combination. So some of the other BRAF-MEC class-effect toxicities still exist, but if you look at the safety profile of this combination, it really does look different than these other regimens. And that would be, as a practitioner, the reason to be interested in yet another BRAF-MEC combination. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that a couple of years ago, and I'm curious in terms of selection, I'm going to guess that if you're going to use targeted therapy in the adjuvant situation, you're only going to use dabrafenib, trametinib, because that's where the data is? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, post-ESMO, it's been, and before FDA approvals, you know, we're obviously petitioning on behalf of patients with payers 
you know, to get coverage of this approach. And I think, you know, we're not going to have much of a strong leg to stand on if we're lobbying for something beyond abraphinitrometinib in the adjuvant setting. So I think you're right on that point. It's in the metastatic setting, obviously, where we'll have, you know, the full menu of options and can choose based on preferences, including tolerability. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Right now, first-line metastatic disease, what's your usual non-protocol combination? So we've, you know, basically told patients and within our own group, we've said, look, you know, pick your poison, dorafenitrometinib versus vemurafenicobimetinib. In terms of tolerability, the efficacy data is almost superimposable. So just go based on toxicity preference. And that's not a very strong, you know, statement in terms of picking between the two. And I think, you know, we don't have any reason to believe that there's any ability to give patients, you know, salvage targeted therapy if they failed one of these other regimens. So it really is pick your regimen and go with it. And immunotherapy, obviously, is the rest of the discussion. So I know at one point there was a lot of interest in patients with NRAS mutations. And I think this combination was being looked at. And where did that end up? Yeah. So MEK inhibitor monotherapy was put, you know, all the way through a phase three trial in NRAS mutant patients, you know, and produced a 15% response rate, produced an improvement in progression-free survival that was statistically significant, but it was just really modest, right? We're talking, you know, one and a half month improvement in progression-free survival in a disease where we're, you know, now used to seeing, you know, six or 12 months improvements, even in medians. And so basically, you know, while the trial was positive, it was you know, data produced in a population who mostly hadn't seen immune checkpoint therapy, and that, of course, you know, had become the standard along the way. So it was a lot of reluctance to embrace MEK inhibitor monotherapy as you know, clearly a new treatment to bring into the armamentarium. But where there is almost as much enthusiasm around that approach is in the targeted immuno-oncology you know, combo strategy. So in other words, I mentioned already BRAF-MEK-PD-1 or BRAF-MEK-PD-L1, you know, triplets in phase three. Well, quietly to the side of them are a couple of phase three trials with MEK inhibitor plus PD-1 or PD-L1 in the BRAF wild types, half of whom have NRAS mutations and half of whom have other drivers. But the point being that where MEK inhibitors may find their first real inroad in melanoma would be in combination with PD-1 and in the BRAF wild types. And again, thinking back to our GI session that we had, we had Johanna Bendel, and I know she at one point had looked at using a MEK inhibitor with a PD-1 for MSI-stable colon cancer. Is that kind of the same strategy? Yeah, no, in fact, that same trial included a melanoma cohort, again, BRAF wild types, and, and the MSS colon data was the most clear signal, if you will, because MEK inhibitors have so little activity there, and PD-1 antibodies also, and the fact that the combination was producing a you know nearly 20% response rate with what looked like you know some really durable responses in that group, that was taken as being you know kind of clear validation of the concept. In melanoma, as I already said, we already know that PD-1 antibodies have activity. We know that MEK inhibitors have some activity, even in the BRAF wild types. So the signal that was generated in the melanoma population looked actually just as good. It was a 50% response rate of MEK PD-1 combo. But is that clearly different than PD-1 monotherapy? We need a bigger data set, obviously. But because these drugs are active, you can imagine, again, these ongoing randomized trials, they are just accruing like gangbusters because patients who are enrolling on them are getting access to you know, active therapy on whichever arm of the study they're assigned. I know I've heard Johanna explain what she thinks is the biology, but what's your take on why a MEK inhibitor would improve response to a PD-1 agent? So the data that's been generated in patients, actually, not just in models and including in our group where we've done some of this work, it's pretty clear on the tumor cell side that you see MHC or antigen expression go up hmm. as a consequence of MEK inhibitors. You see immune cells in the microenvironment change. So you see that macrophages appear to be kind of repolarized back to an M1 phenotype from an M2 phenotype. And you see more T cell entry into the tumor as a consequence of just MEK inhibitor monotherapy. So what's the chicken and the egg of that? In other words, how much of this is a tumor effect that's then having manifestations in terms of immune recognition? How much of it is purely immunologic? We don't know, but all of those phenomena that I just described have been confirmed, not just in model systems, but in patients. So to me, that's you know enough reason to keep investigating. But on the back of these trials, let's say we have positive phase three trials for progression-free survival you know, with combo versus monotherapy, are we really going to know who's getting the benefit and why? That's going to take a bit more work. I want to get to your cases in a second, but a couple other quick questions. One, I noticed that you were involved, I know you do phase one work as well, but with the drug napabucosin, the quote stem cell inhibitor, of course we've talked about that a lot with the GI cancers. 
Just kind of curious in your quick take about where that's heading. Yeah. So that concept, I think, is alive and well, that there's a population of cells that survive our best available therapies. And, you know, these cells have stem cell-like features. Are they truly stem cells? To be debated and discussed. But basically, they're less differentiated than the cells that are more responsive to therapy. And everything I'm saying so far appears to emerge with targeted therapy and immunotherapy as an equal theme. So there's this surviving population of cells, and these are not rare, you know, one in a million cells. These are pretty common and we need therapies to target them. We need to be able to try to kill that residual population. And that's where this agent you know, came forward as one of the very early efforts to try to poison that cell population. Having said that, there are definitely other approaches emerging now that seem to be ultimately pointed at trying to solve the same problem, to really be toxic to this sort of de-differentiated subpopulation, or try to push them you know, kind of in an epigenetic way, back towards the better differentiated type or phenotype, and then therefore sensitize them to these available drugs. And so that's, you know, been the broad proposition. As you'd say, this agent's been most developed in GI cancers because multiple phase three trials have been mounted in GI tumors. But this is emerging as a common theme across multiple therapeutic contexts. Of course, it was described in hematologic malignancies, you know, years before, you know, that the chemo surviving or even in the case of some hemalignancies, targeted therapy surviving subpopulations are these sort of stem cell-like populations. But we see it in melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, breast cancer. It's an emerging and repeated theme. Do you think that this particular agent is going to end up in practice? Yeah, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, it's got a perfectly acceptable toxicity profile, so it can be broadly combined and is going to need to be given in combination. But it's because of the biology that's being pursued and the design of these trials where you're going to need kind of, you know, full mature phase three populations followed out, you know, to completion before you're going to really make a call. We've been working with this drug specifically in phase one for at least four years, maybe five years now, and really difficult to glean signals from, you know, phase one or phase one slash two studies as to whether it's moving the needle. So this is one where I think we're going to have to, you know, kind of keep holding our breath and see what phase three trials look like. So one more question, which is we now have two hedgehog inhibitors approved in basal cell cancer. I'm curious what your thoughts and experiences are in terms of using these agents, when you use them, and how you choose between the two. So vismotigib being the first, and then sunitigib coming right behind it, you know, they look pretty comparable by response rate in the early going Tolerability, you know, these drugs have a real issue in terms of fatigue, altered sense of taste, and then usually we think as a consequence of that weight loss, making it difficult to treat patients for a long period of time. And yet the flip side is that most of the addressable population that we're talking about with truly advanced basal cell carcinoma are kind of locally advanced, you know, borderline resectable patients. They've already been through a surgery or two and radiation as well, typically. And so, you know, we oftentimes think about these drugs as being let's call it induction therapy of a sort. I mean, like, let's get patients into a response, recognizing we're going to have to stop after a few or several months. And so usually the idea with, you know, talking to patients about this prospectively is, look, give us, you know, a few months, two, three months to kind of get you moving in the right direction, see if we can, you know, keep you on therapy beyond that time frame. But, you know, we're not talking about indefinite one, two-year durations of therapy. These drugs just unfortunately are not tolerable in the vast majority of patients out through that time frame. So between the two though, so Nidijib, based on the emerging data that supported its approval and then now in clinical practice, it does seem better tolerated. There was this randomized phase two study that was done of kind of lower dose and higher dose and they looked equally effective, but the lower dose, which was the approved dose, clearly better tolerated. And so while it does have the same class effect toxicity, it really does have a little bit less you know, in terms of those kind of constitutional type toxicities, you know, if you were to look across the trials and now in clinical practice. So in any case, suffice to say that these are therapies that I think in this population are best considered as, you know, kind of a course of therapy, plan on taking a break. You'll be able to you know, get kind of buy-in from the patient if you upfront communicate that you're not going to be threatening them with indefinite therapy, but get them into a response plan on taking a break, and then watch them closely, you may have to retreat. But like with other targeted therapies in oncogene-defined populations, 
it seems pretty clear that you can retreat. In other words, if you've stopped for reasons other than emergence of resistance, the likelihood of being able to reinduce a response seems to be quite high. So that's been our practice, even in patients who could never entertain another surgery. In patients who could be rendered surgical candidates with a response, obviously that's a real sweet spot for these drugs. And that's really where their uptake has taken hold, is in locally advanced patients where they would have to undergo a disfiguring surgery. And if you can get them into a significant response where it makes the surgery much less morbid, that's a real value proposition. It must be difficult to do trials because there are not that many patients. So maybe a lot of this comes down to individual experiments with patients. Do you ever attempt to sort of like intermittent therapy or different schedules of therapy? Well, scheduling is everything. It's pretty clear that dose reductions don't do a whole lot to mitigate toxicity. So it really is a matter of treatment breaks. And as you're alluding to, you know, do you just plan those up front? In other words, you get a patient through a month or two of therapy, see, you know, if you're lucky and there's someone who really tolerates treatment exceptionally well, And if not, which is most patients, do you then just build in breaks? You know, three weeks on, one week off is a common strategy that people have tried. But some people need more time off drug than that to really have mitigation of these toxicities. So, you know, if you need two weeks off to be able to get some relief, then how long do you stay on? This has been done really just ad hoc in practice. There haven't been follow-on trials to really tease out these schedule issues And really, as you said, it's because of the rarity of the population. New trials going forward are going to be tough because, sure, you can demonstrate activity in patients who have truly unresectable metastatic basal cell, but that's really rare. The much larger number of patients that exist are locally advanced patients. And if they're going to get surgery after systemic therapy, man, that makes it hard to design trials with definitive endpoints when you've got people differentially pursuing surgery or not. It's kind of like the old AML issue of, you know, patients being bridged to transplant and that making it difficult to judge outcomes. So I want to ask you about a couple of your cases briefly. And I was interested by the fact that we saw an approval specifically in Merkel cell cancer of Evalumab. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, is that really a completely different disease? So I asked you to pull a case so you could educate me on Merkel cell. Let's hear about this 72-year-old lady. This is a patient who presented, like many do, with kind of a subcutaneous lesion on her extremity. And, you know, it was kind of watched initially clinically because, you know, just looked like it could be a lymph node or it could be, you know, anything, but didn't have a real superficial finding to it in terms of at the skin surface. But it really progressed quickly, as Merkel cells typically do, which ultimately prompted biopsy and excision. So these lesions, we really don't know how to stage them well, but they do confer really high risk of microscopic metastatic disease and obviously ultimately relapse even following definitive surgery. They're obviously surgical excision plus minus on the sentinel lymph node approach in this population is kind of the usual There have been debates and discussion in the field whether you should radiate the area around a primary tumor, but of course that doesn't help the patients who have microscopic metastatic disease to lung and elsewhere, which are the most common, you know, long-term sort of sequelae, which was exactly her situation. So, you know, adjuvant therapy hasn't really convincingly existed for this population in years past, and particularly in an older patient giving platinum-based chemotherapy, which has been considered a standard of sorts in the metastatic setting and kind of debated in terms of its relevance in the adjuvant setting. You know, for an older patient where you have some concerns about offering a regimen like that that doesn't have, you know, clear compelling efficacy rationale, observation is, you know, kind of the most common approach. But now with the emergence of these data, I would say it is particularly critical to be keeping an eye on these patients because they have a very high risk of recurrence and because we have a therapy now that's clearly impactful. So just a couple reminders about Merkel cell carcinoma. There's kind of two varieties of it, and the clinical studies have re-identified this with the PD-1 antibody approach. There's some that are actually very high mutation burden tumors that kind of look like squamous cell cancers in terms of that feature. But you've got this viral-associated form of Merkel cell carcinoma that's, you know, fundamentally different in terms of its pathophysiology. And obviously, as patients were treated and tested for the presence of this virus, presence or absence, basically, and having that correlated with outcome, it turns out that actually patients can respond to a PD-1 antibody, whether they have a virus-associated cancer or not. And that's probably 
It makes sense when you consider that the high mutation burden variety is probably capable of responding simply because of that fact. So in any case, these are you know, tumor types, you know, or the virus-associated and non-virus-associated one, that we think are truly immunogenic. And therefore, it lines up with you know, melanoma data, it lines up with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma data actually presented at ASCO that shows quite a promising response rate with PD-1 antibodies as well. So I think it's perfectly logical that we're seeing the efficacy signal that we're seeing with PD-1 antibodies. In this case, Avelumab was the first to get approved, but we already phase two level data being produced with the other PD-1 antibodies showing the consistency of that effect. So the real issue that this case brings up that I wanted to mention is that we've got an approval that specifically indicates that it's for use after chemotherapy in patients with advanced disease. And yet we really have such little confidence in the chemotherapy regimens, platinum-based chemotherapy regimens that have been used in this population over the years. And so I'll tell you that in clinical practice, the temptation is to really move frontline with these agents, and particularly in an older patient like this, to not be potentially losing really valuable time where a patient has you know, no response, this aggressive tumor type Merkel cell will progress so quickly that you can have patients go from asymptomatic to symptomatic in a matter of weeks. And given the efficacy data that we see with these PD-1 antibodies, the real temptation is to really move to first-line treatment. But what is it going to take for that to become a guideline and you know, even to alter the potential indication? We'll see. What do you see in terms of response rate, particularly durable response? So response rates are about 50%, which is really about as high as it gets in solid tumors with P1 antibodies. Having said that, the data that we have right now, which is just about a year's worth of maturity in terms of follow-up of the FDA-approved population or indication, it looks like the durability is not as great in Merkel cell carcinoma as it is in melanoma. So if you just track the progression-free survival curve, you'll see you know, this kind of turn in the curve at about you know, 50% of the population, even a little higher than that, actually, for patients who have stable disease, but you see a decay. Almost half of those patients who initially had disease control or response will lose it over the subsequent year. So telling you that there's probably a decent degree of heterogeneity and complexity of these tumors that's driving resistance even more so than we see in melanoma. Can you kind of do a brief sort of Wikipedia-type summary of Merkel cell in terms of number of cases, cell of origin, and clinical presentation? Well, let me start with cell of origin. That continues to be an absolute mystery. We still don't know what the cell of origin is. And there's all sorts of work that's been done to suggest that it might be sweat gland, might be hair follicle. It's a deep structure. You Typically in the dermis is where these things arise, which is why in a case like this one that I presented of this woman, she had a truly subcutaneous nodule. And again, it supports this kind of dermal origin of these cells. In terms of cases, we're not sure that we really have adequate capture of all the cases. Maybe this is one that now that we have more effective therapy, we'll get a more complete and accurate assessment. These are small blue cell tumors because they look like small cell tumors in other parts of the body. But when they arise in the skin, you know, primarily, then they're rightly called Merkel cell carcinoma. We think there's a couple thousand cases a year, but not more than that. Really? That's a lot. You know, it's a population that has, I think, fallen between the cracks. Even at major centers, many of them are head and neck. About 50% plus of them present in a head and neck um, location and will often be triaged to head and neck surgeons for initial surgical management. But the rest of them happen elsewhere and most commonly in the extremities, so they'll be managed upfront by a you know, more general surgical oncologist. And then who sees them for medical oncology, you know, it totally depends on, you know, kind of referral patterns and otherwise. But if you look at the registry data, it's really hard to know whether we're even fully capturing this population of patients. Many of them might be getting called, you know, small cell cancer NOS and not accurately classified. It's interesting. If you were to see a patient, for example, if you had seen this patient or saw a patient like her earlier on after the primary tumor removal and lymph node dissection, who would be willing to pay for the drug, you know, whatever, would you use Avelumab in the adjuvant setting? I think it's perfectly reasonable. There are a couple of phase two trials, adjuvant trials being mounted now to at least try to, you know, track these patients in that setting to understand, you know, even without a proper control arm initially, what the effect might be. In the absence of that data, what I used to say before ESMO was we really don't know about the adjuvant benefit of these PD-1 antibodies in any setting. Well, now in melanoma, we know. And so to then cross over to a rare tumor type like Merkel cell, where who knows how long it'll take for us to get definitive data, 
I think it's perfectly reasonable. The safety profile, in my view, is such of PD-1 monotherapy in the adjuvant setting to say that, you know, given the activity of these drugs in the metastatic setting in this population, that is, a, I think, a reasonable discussion to have with a patient, recognizing that we don't know if the benefit is maintained or possibly worse, possibly better to deploy it in the adjuvant setting. But for a patient who understands those concerns and would be willing to cover the cost if their payer weren't, I don't see a reason to withhold. Incidentally, I don't know if you consider, you know, post-chemo radiation therapy and lung cancer adjuvant, but kind of seems adjuvant to me and standard of care. <laughs> but, and you know, another thing I was going to ask you about not having adjuvant data is neoadjuvant. We saw this paper at ASCO from the Memorial Group looking at neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitor lung cancer. It was pretty interesting. I saw a lot of responses. What do we know in general about neoadjuvant therapy and melanoma? Yeah, so there's two strains of that. There's the immune checkpoint approach and BRAF-MAC neoadjuvant. And actually, it's the MD Anderson group that's been producing the most data early on with either approach. Really fascinating. I mean, because we get pathologic complete responses. 50% of patients on BRAF-MAC and pushing about 40% on PD-1, neoadjuvant. Now, the thing about this data that you have to keep in mind is that we have a very small fraction of the melanoma population who are ever in that clinical window where you kind of classify them as being neoadjuvant candidates, right? Remember, the vast majority of our patients present with a small primary tumor that's easily excised. So to have, let's say, bulky lymph nodes that are resectable and where they're candidates for these types of trials or this clinical approach, that's a pretty niche population, but they could be a huge opportunity for us to do studies in that population building on this early evidence of a pathologic complete response, right? Because if we have new agents that we can throw into the mix and show in small numbers of patients, like in the you know, breast cancer context with neoadjuvant studies, that we can bump up the complete response rate, that might be a very effective way of triaging new approaches before you know, scaling up massive randomized phase two and phase three trials. Yeah, that was always the hope in breast cancer, but I guess it didn't quite exactly work out. Fair enough. <laughs> right. Makes a lot of sense, but sometimes things that make sense don't always work. So exactly. one final thing I want to ask you about is I noticed looking through these cases that you had a patient who got TVEC, and I want to kind of get an update of where that is. This is a 21-year-old. What happened there? This was a patient who had this you know, recurrence of disease that was, you know, in transit, as we call it, you know, these dermal metastases. Well, then lymph node actually was the first thing that was injected in her case, but then she had the in transits. And TVEC, that's right in the sweet spot of when TVEC was tested prospectively in phase two and then phase three trials. Maybe you can just backtrack and explain what TVEC is. It's a herpes virus that's basically replication incompetent. So when you inject it, it can't, you know, disseminate, you know, widely as an active herpes virus, but it will survive in the tumor cell long enough to be able to induce expression of GMCSF. So it's actually genetically engineered, the herpes virus, to express or deliver the gene that expresses GMCSF, which is a you know, cytokine that's been of interest in melanoma for a long time. And if you can express high local concentrations of that stuff, you know, it would appear that you can then induce a local immune response. So that was the design of TVEC, was to basically use the herpes virus as a carrier to get the GMCSF gene in there induce GMCSF expression, and then invite in dendritic cells and inflammatory responses. Clearly, it does that. And as you probably recall from the phase two and phase three data, one of the issues was that you could get a response in injected lesions pretty reliably. But the issue is, do you have an effect beyond that? Because a patient like this, you know, we're very worrisome initial presentation, even more worrisome, you know, recurrence, stage three recurrence initially, these patients are, you know, inordinately likely to develop subsequent metastatic disease. So if you're thinking about, you know, TVEC as an approach, you want a systemic effect. You know that you're going to be facing recurrent disease in 80, 90% of these patients systemically. So the point being that in this case, it was used very much on label, kind of right in the way that TVEC was investigated in trials. And when you looked at the subset data from the phase three trial of TVEC, it was these exact patients, these stage 3B, 3C, or even in the M1A category, who seem to even have an overall survival improvement, suggesting a systemic effect. Now, the fact is that all of that data was very interesting at the time, but with the immune checkpoints coming, and of course, BRAF mech therapy coming as well as much more active systemic therapies, one wonders, like, what's the place for TVEC anymore, right? Because even in this exact patient who presents with this stage three recurrence, wouldn't you just use that as a window to now initiate, you know, these much more systemically impactful therapies that you know would high likelihood would give you a local response as well. So, you know, turning all this and putting it to the scenario now where you have a patient who presents with metastatic disease of some kind and they have an injectable lesion. 
you know, is there a role for giving TVAC, let's say, for a few weeks before you start your quote-unquote definitive systemic therapy? Or in a patient who's been getting systemic therapy but has residual disease that's injectable, do you use that lesion to deliver TVAC to be able to try to augment you know, the systemic response and the immune response. These are the questions that the field's wrestling with now post the approval of TVAC. But remember, when it was developed, it was tested by itself as, you know, kind of, you know, standalone therapy. That's just not how it's going to, you know, get incorporated if it is maintained as a treatment approach in the field. Well, the thing that I wondered about is I heard about these issues in terms of how you actually do the injection and like the infection precautions and stuff. It sounded like it was kind of a hassle. Yes. Is it? It is. Unfortunately, it needs to be treated, you know, essentially like a live virus, you know. So as I said, it's replication incompetent, but that doesn't take it below the radar of how a practice or an institution handles it. So it has to be in a special pharmacy, has to be, you know, refrigerated in special conditions. You can't keep the stuff around forever, right? So you have to kind of refresh your stock, you know, pretty frequently. So there's all of those issues. And then in terms of the administration part, basically just you need to have a non-pregnant practitioner. That's kind of rule number one. But otherwise, it's pretty straightforward. You inject, you know, the volume that you basically mix up of the stuff. You'll inject it across the lesions that you're dealing with. If you have one large lesion, you try to put it all in there. If you've got a few small lesions, you try to, you know, distribute it across. And that's not perfectly codified, right? In the clinical trial that established the benefit of the approach, you know, different patients were treated differently in terms of exactly, you know, how you use the material, if you will. So yeah, there's some art involved in terms of how to incorporate it into practice. So final question, I see that this woman actually had a BRAF positive disease and that you... I guess we're thinking about, or maybe you already have initiated systemic therapy. I see two PDL1 IHC negative. It's a real tricky issue about, okay, she has a BRAF mutation and she's PDL1 negative. Does that make it then obvious that you give BRAF MEC because she would have a you know, 10, 15% likelihood of response to PD1 antibody and she has a you know, 70% response likelihood to BRAF MEC? Some practitioners would say, yeah, that's exactly how and why I would use a PDL1 test. My objections I already made before. So, in fact, in talking with her, you know, when she was referred to me with all of that data available, I told her, look, I can't confidently incorporate that result in decision making. What I can tell you is we've got these two approaches. You know, they're both certainly on the table. Because she's so young, PD1CTLA4 as a combination approach, even with its not magnificent benefit at the level of overall survival, it's the young, what I kind of refer to as the young, highly motivated. These are the patients who we used to talk about high-dose IL-2 with. You know, those kinds of patients, when you have a conversation about PD-1 monotherapy versus PD-1 CTLA-4, you find more, you know, traction, if you will, for throwing the kitchen sink there with the combination. So it's that combination versus BRF-MEC combination was the relevant discussion with her. She ended up choosing PD-1 CTLA-4 combination as the initial approach with BRF-MEC then as the backup. Yeah, that's kind of what I predicted when I saw this case. How did she do? She didn't respond to PD-1-CTLA-4 after you know, basically only two induction cycles and severe toxicity that precluded getting more. You know, she kind of basically hit the stopping point on induction therapy after two rounds, and at least at that point didn't have evidence of a response. So she switched to BRAF-MAC right at that point. Which combination? Dibrafenotrametinib. What kind of toxicity did she have? So she had colitis and what seemed like gastritis, I mean, you know, true treatment-related gastritis as well. It was symptomatic, led to a scope, and she really did have quite an inflamed gastric mucosa. That's not a very common site of checkpoint-associated, you know, autoimmune toxicity, whereas, of course, the colitis we would comfortably attribute. But because of the timing, they really were at the same exact time frame. We sort of ascribed all of that to being checkpoint antibody-related. But she needed steroids. So basically, someone who hits that level of toxicity is, you know, at least for the time being done with immune checkpoint therapy in our practice. 